Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to From the Concert Hall with your hosts Corbin Sturch and Zachary Payne, your vintage radio program here on KUOZ 100.5 FM, community radio produced by the Radio Television Video Department here at University of the Ozarks in Clarksville, Arkansas. From the Concert Hall plays some of the famous artists of the past, as well as features a few of our very own from right here at home. So sit back, relax, and enjoy as we take you live right here to our very own little concert hall. Thank you for tuning in to From the Concert Hall. I'm Zachary Payne. And I'm Corbin Sturch. This week we are talking about dance music of the Renaissance. If you remember last week, we talked about music of the medieval era. And, you know, we said that... Musicologists really don't know when the clear break was. We know it was sometime in the mid to late 14th century. But, you know, that transition went right into the Renaissance. And tonight, you're going to hear from a few pieces and still hear that real medieval influence. Zach, do you want to kind of introduce us to the Renaissance period itself? Absolutely. The Renaissance uh, marks the transition from the medieval period to the Baroque um, the Renaissance was really a time of change in religious, economic, and political matters, um, which led to some of the changes inside science, philosophy, and literature. Um, the, I would say the most, imp- some of the most important changes, anyway, um, were inside the literature, science, and music. Um, I guess we might as well start with uh, some of the literature from this time. Um, I would say that the biggest writer of this time was, of course, Shakespeare. Um, and everyone knows about Shakespeare and his plays and how popular he was in England and uh, about his Globe Theater. And uh, he was just a huge part in the Renaissance in England, particularly. I'm just trying to imagine any little eighth or ninth grader out there who's sitting here thinking, oh, you're reminding me I have to do my Romeo and Juliet reading for class tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I could definitely understand that. I remember having to go over it in high school and... Um, Looking back at it now and reading reading these plays again, I can definitely appreciate them more than what I used to. But he was a great writer uh, inside a great time with a lot of great changes, I would say. Um, and many people don't know this, just a little side note, but uh, his Globe Theater, um, part of the area where people would watch his plays, um, was actually down on the floor where there wasn't any seating. And so this is where we get our, uh, our saying... Standing room only. Exactly. And so a lot of people don't know that. So just a little side note, random information. Um, we also have uh, plenty of notable scientists from this uh, era, like uh, Descartes, Mar- uh, Mercator, and of course Galileo, who was, uh, you know, inventor of the telescope. And so this was huge time in science whenever we started to question, you know, exactly how the world worked and maybe we aren't the center of the universe and so on and so forth. So not only do we get the telescope during this period, but we get the idea that we're no longer the center of the universe. We get the the notion from um, the scientists that, in fact, we all revolve around the sun. The earth is no longer the center of the universe like the church had been telling people. Exactly. And so this is a very interesting time. Um, Lots of big changes, I had said earlier. Um, And I guess from here we can move on to some uh, some of the big artists of the Renaissance period, and uh, all these names, I'm sure you'll remember, and we're just going to briefly go over about four of them. Uh, Michelangelo, 1475 to 1564, 
Leonardo da Vinci, 1452 to 1519, Raphael, 1483 to 1520, and Donatello, 1386 to 1466. Most of you might know these names from some turtles. <laughs> right, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, for all of you out there who may wonder what that reference was. Exactly, and so very impressive artists whose works are very well displayed still today and right. are very appreciated. Um, you had Michelangelo's um, the Sistine Chapel ceiling, the, the fresco there on the ceiling where you see Adam with God. You know, he was he spent what was it five or ten years working on that fresco in scaffolding, and this paint would drip on him as it was trying to dry because he would just lay there on his back on the scaffolding so close. He nearly went blind painting that piece on the ceiling. I know, and that's phenomenal. And to think that back then, before we had all, you know, before all the lifts and everything and all the fancy technology, there wasn't really an easy way to get up that high to paint something, especially something that beautiful, and to do it while you're lying on your back for years is just impressive. I'm just trying to imagine planning that out. If you can only see... I mean, a few feet in front of you at a time, you don't ever get a chance to be sitting at the bottom looking up at the whole thing all at once while you're working. Exactly. And, like, you know, there are painters who work with a single canvas, but, I mean, like, this was a massive area of space. I mean, just to even imagine something and to be able to make it up in your head to paint something to that scale is just phenomenal. I mean, we can't just mention Da Vinci. You know... They credit Da Vinci with coming up with the first idea for a helicopter. Oh my gosh. An impressive <laughs> artist as well as a very impressive, I guess, just scientist. Came up with so many different ideas. Um, was uh, credited, I can't remember for which chapel, but the dome. He designed the dome himself inside one of the chapels. And I'm trying to remember which one it was. But um, he was big and not just art. He was just a huge part of the Renaissance. I think it's from these four or five people here, and from many other very famous people, we get that phrase, Renaissance man, or person of the Renaissance, because when you hear that phrase, you realize it means someone who's well-rounded. Da Vinci, for example, was an artist, an inventor, a scientist, an alchemist, I believe, an architect. He was a little bit of everything, but he was so knowledgeable in everything that it wasn't just a little bit of this, a little bit of that he was nearly an expert in all of these fields and gave so many contributions to each of them. Absolutely. It's impressive to think that people at this time, while all these major changes are going on around them, can still focus on one thing that's going on around them and be able to learn so much while so much is changing around them still. Right. And uh, speaking of some of the changes, uh, Corbin, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the changes inside the church, inside religion during the Renaissance period? Right. You know, before this, the Catholic Church was really the most, was the dominant church. Before the Renaissance, during the medieval era, we did see a split into orthodoxy. But during the Renaissance and the religious reformations, this is really when we got the real schism of the church and the real splits that are still very prominent today and help shape most major denominations within Christianity today. The first of these was Martin Luther. In 1517, he put his 95 Thesis on the door in Wittenberg. And this was 
a list of 95 grievances, things he had against the church and against the theology at the time. The biggest one being that money cannot buy freedom from sin. You can't just pay the church and then suddenly you have that ticket to heaven. It's your golden ticket. That, that wasn't how it worked. According to Luther, you actually had to pray to Christ for your salvation. It wasn't monetary. It wasn't just good works. It was good works, real faith in Christ, and putting that effort forth. While, yes, he said tithing was important, he said that money will not buy you know, freedom from sin. The Pope didn't like this, as you can imagine. <laughs> and so he was excommunicated on the 15th of June and 1520. This was about three, four years after he had posted his 95 Thesis. He met in front of the Council of Worms and was excommunicated by order of the Pope and the Council. Another big change that Luther really established was that priests could marry. Before this, you know, Catholic priests were not allowed to marry, but they, these priests were no longer Catholic. So a priest under Luther in the Lutheran church, priests could marry. There was also no more purgatory. Which was huge. These are huge claims that he's making against the church, which is why he got excommunicated. And to keep in mind, as we talked about uh, last week with excommunication, to a person, let's say, you know, a few hundred years ago, back in the medieval era, that meant the worst kind of punishment you could get. It meant you weren't going to heaven. And that was taken away from you. Not only that, but your sense of religion, your sense of hope was taken away from you because you weren't allowed in the church anymore. Right. You grow up in this time during the medieval era and the dark ages where everything is so hard. There's not the opulence you see in the Renaissance and the Baroque era. It's so hard. And religion gave people that hope that Zach just mentioned. And when you take away someone's hope and they're living for nothing, the thought that they'll live in turmoil all through their lives and then only end up dying and then spending an eternity in just absolute terror and pain, it was, I mean, it's a real fear. Absolutely. And so these were huge claims that he was making, and um, they are phenomenal. And uh, just some of the things that Luther talked about that I appreciated a lot were the natural rights that uh, humans have, you know, like... um, a bunch of them that are inside our constitution today, one of which which I love is the pursuit of happiness, that every man on this earth has a right to pursue happiness, that, you know, no one can tell a person that they can't be happy. You know, these natural rights that uh, being born onto the earth that you have, that no one can take away from you. And so these were huge ideas that people had such rights and that they weren't bestowed by the church or anyone else, that these were just what you had as a human being. Right. Speaking of rights, Luther didn't believe in the Holy War. He didn't believe in war at all, really. He was a pacifist. He, you know, he read the Quran in Latin. Islam was a faith that was really challenging Christianity at the time, and we were at war with the Islamic faith, the Christian church was. And Luther, after reading the Quran, still believed that Islam was a tool of the devil, but he said it is not right to go to war physically. It is only right to go to war through prayer. We should not hurt one another. We should not impede upon those rights of others. Every man has 
that right exactly. to live peacefully. And that's one thing that was huge about that time. That's something that the uh, church has still caught a lot of, I guess, flack for, was the Crusades. Right. Another church to split later was the Anglican Church. Anglican meaning uneven. Well, of England, I'm sorry. This was about 20 years after Luther. And this is probably a very... Everyone loves this story and just how different it is for a church splitting. You get angry and say you're going to do your own thing. It's it's childish. Pretty much. Um, it was done by King Henry VIII, and um, basically the sole basis for this was ultimately the Catholic Church didn't want to grant his divorce to his wife because she wasn't bearing him a son. He wanted a son, an heir to his throne. And he went, how many wives did he go through exactly? Oh, I don't know. I think there were about eight or nine with him. It was it was quite a few. He, uh, he kept trying for a son. But ultimately, the Catholic Church told him, no, we're not going to let you divorce another person for this reason, or you know, you have no reason to not be with her anymore. And divorce was not allowed in the Catholic Church at the time. And so he was eventually like, well, okay, if that's how you're going to be, I'll start my own church. Right. And, I mean, I don't like to say that divorce wasn't allowed. Divorce itself, yes, wasn't allowed, but they did grant annuls on one ground. If your marriage had not been consummated, which means you hadn't procreated, Mm -hmm. your marriage could be annulled because at the mind of people at that time, until your marriage was consummated, you weren't officially married. Mm-hmm. Even if you had been blessed in the sight of God, that's all marriage was at that time, a blessing by the church and God. Hmm. Interesting. I had not known that. So, for a few years, the church was kind of in turmoil, about 30 years, and then finally Elizabeth I gave it its real shape in about 1562-1563. Before this, you know, we did have the Book of Common Prayer, which, if anyone is Episcopalian or Anglican, they know the Book of Common Prayer is the leadership for the worship. It's a book that has all of your prayers, the orders of worships, the rites of ordination and confirmation, and your liturgy, what Bible verses go with what time of year, so you can go through the whole Bible in about three years and know it all, but never being the same each year. But we did see the Book of Common Prayer. It made its first appearance in 1549, so there was some theological basis there already, but the formation didn't take shape, and in 1562, Elizabeth started giving it more form. Later, the prayer book was majorly revised in 1662 to better update the theological standing. Now, one thing I would like to make clear, the church does, on a regular basis, look at their canons and their accepted beliefs almost yearly, and try to make revisions to, to keep with God and their new findings and society at the time. Because one thing the Anglican Church pushes is knowledge and growing deeper in one's knowledge of faith. Now, I mentioned Episcopal earlier. Here, in a couple hundred years, we'll see... Well, not a couple hundred. Here in a few years, we'll see this group sail across the sea on this little ship called the Mayflower to establish the colony of America. Well, not colony of America, but the territory that became America and the country. America, you know, seeking religious freedom, wanted its own church too. 
it was still a part of the Church of England, those who weren't Puritans. And to set themselves aside, they wanted to be called the Episcopal Church of America or the Episcopal Church. Well, they couldn't, they couldn't have a church without a bishop, and they couldn't have a bishop without three bishops. Because to make a bishop, you have to have three bishops. So they had to pay to bring three bishops from England so they could have one bishop wow. <laughs> ordained to their church and grow up from there. But So if you know Episcopal friends, know that their history dates back to the Anglican Church of England, and it's all part of the Anglican Communion. Now, Lutherans are still very present. We know the Lutheran Church here in America, but from Lutherans we also got the Baptist churches, the Church of Christ. Between Lutheran and Anglican, we got Methodist. All of these major denominations, these Protestant denominations, were kind of a birth of these two different churches, and they're split from the church back in the 1500s. Exactly, and as I had said earlier, it was definitely a time of a lot of changes. And some of these changes, of course, we are a music show, and so we can't get away from that are the music changes. Um, there were more noted composers since at this time, as composers actually took record of what they wrote. Um, one of the biggest, uh, and I could probably go on a huge tangent about him, uh, would be Talis. Um, he was a church musician and considered one of the church's best early composers. In his time, he was treated very well uh, by, the, uh, by the nobles, inside England, and uh, Queen Elizabeth actually allowed him to use the printing press, uh, him and his apprentice to use the printing press, to publish his work, which was one of the first times that this happened in this period. Right. Before the Renaissance, we didn't really see the printing press. We, we had printing, but not on the mass scale. The printing press was a new thing for the Renaissance and allowed movable type and mass production of the same print volume. And music was one of those things. It became published on a wide scale in about four or five different places throughout Europe and the Western world. Absolutely. It was a huge time for science, music, literature, the church. It was, so much was happening. It was a very interesting time. Right. Zach, you want to tell us a bit about the first piece? It's kind of a, that mix, that bridge between the two eras. Absolutely. Our first piece is uh, Lamento de Tristano. Similar to last week's Lament, um, it has a very somber sound, uh, the very neat undertones of the drum, and uh, has that same wood flute. And so it adds those same kind of keys, uh, not keys necessarily, but those same effects as the music before. And it just really gives you a feel, but you can definitely see some obvious differences between the medieval dance music and now the renaissance dance music but we figured this would be a good one to start out on as it is more of a mix of the two than a definite renaissance or medieval right because last week you saw the medieval version of it now you're getting that newer style of music that we would see in this the more italian or french style of music right, right. so very interesting and we hope you enjoy it
Lamento de Tristano with the added um, Rato. Exactly. And as you were listening to it, I hope that you could hear some of the more complex melodies that really make the difference between the Renaissance and the medieval. The medieval was all very simple, very to one beat. The time didn't change. It was all very simple dance music. It was a lot of the same throughout the pieces. And this one you're going to, in tonight, you'll hear many different styles of pieces, but all with those slight medieval tones in them. Right. I mean, it is hard to tell that difference in the medieval and the Renaissance. And the flair and the style from the medieval time really wasn't lost during the Renaissance. It was just added to. Exactly. It wasn't a complete U-turn, but there were a lot of... There was more added. Nothing was really taken away. I guess it would be the better way to put that. Right. Our next piece is the Estampita Gaeta. And this piece features the oboe. Through this piece, the oboe carries the melody to the song while there's this drum accompanying with the bum, ba-da, bum, 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 da-da, bum, over and over again, just kind of in the background. The drum creates that dancing beat, that moving perpetual motion, while the oboe sets the tone and carries the melody for the dancers to dance to. Exactly, and as we're listening to all these, keep in mind, you will always hear that drum or some sort of percussion inside these pieces because these are dance pieces, so people would dance to these, not necessarily ballet, but maybe the start of what we would now consider to be ballet. These pieces were very, I guess, not so much simple, but they had a very steady beat to them, but not so much as medieval did. Through the Renaissance, we saw we see dance becoming a more formal event. You would see dance as being not so much organized, but held as a formal gathering, and you would get more pronounced styles of dances and also types of dances within that style that people would learn and know. Absolutely. So through this piece, I hope you're able to hear how the oboe moves the piece and how it is the real melody that sets the tone but i hope you're also able to hear that beat of the drum keeping the dancers in that perpetual motion ever moving forwards
Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to From the Concert Hall here on KUOZ 100.5 FM, community radio from the University of the Ozarks here in Clarksville, Arkansas. Thank you for tuning in to From the Concert Hall. I'm Zachary Payne. And I'm Corbin Starch. And if you're just tuning in to us, we are going over the Renaissance period, and more specifically with music, we're going over Renaissance dance music. Right. The piece you just heard was called the Estampier Gaeta, and it was a piece featuring the oboe and the drum. And it really kind of gave that sense of the high dance, the court dance at the time. Exactly. That a lot of people would know. I would like to make one correction to a statement I made earlier when talking about Henry VIII. I had said he had about eight or nine wives. I overestimated just a little bit. I checked my facts a bit more to make sure I had been right about that. He actually had six wives. Six. I was about to say eight or nine seemed a little high, but I knew you weren't far off. Right. So our next piece tonight is called the Estampita um, Cominciamento de Gloria, which means the beginning of glory, dance to the beginning of glory. Or, as Zach likes to call it, the dance of creation or about creation. Is that right? That's what I perceived from it. I mean, with the title, you know, dance to the beginning of glory. Well, I mean, as humans, I mean, what's more glorious than the creation of our world, you know, our universe and everything. And so to me, this means the dance of the beginning, you know, dance to the creation of us and everything. Right. In this piece, the violin is our lead. And it's meant as more of a slow dance in that sense at the time. So it's not going to be one that people are going to be rushing about and perpetually be moving. I mean, it does have that perpetual motion that the other dances would have, but it doesn't have that fast beat to it. It's slow and it's thoughtful. And Which, this is, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, that makes sense, being that if this is a dance for the creation, then the creation didn't just happen. It wasn't something that, you know, God just threw together. Thought was put into it. And yes, it did happen fast, but it was thoughtful. And it was eloquent. It was beautiful. Right. This song goes between two violins, or what would have been a violin at that time, the medieval version of it. And it's just two violins kind of talking back and forth. There's no drums. The drums were associated with the more of a faster piece or a common dance for the people. This this would have been a dance you had at a high ceremony or high event with people of knowledge or power. And yes, there would have been common people there, I, I like to think at least. Possibly not. Zach, what do you think your takes would be on that? Um, Even though this was the time of Reformation and so much was happening, I don't believe, and I don't, I'm pretty sure in this, that the division of classes was definitely still there. And typically nobility stayed with nobility. And so if there were common people there, they weren't there dancing with the nobility. They may have been there to serve in a way. But other than that, I wouldn't think that the common people would be there for any other reason. No offense to them in that time, but that's just how things were. Right. I think you're right, and the separation of classes was very present. I mean, it is still a time where the serfs are serfs, the nobles and knights are the nobles and knights. 
from the medieval era, but that is starting to change. I mean, even today we still have that separation of classes, but there is more of an equality, and I think at that time they were slowly starting to work towards it, ever so slowly. I mean, Exactly, and inside this time you didn't have to be born wealthy, you didn't have to be born into something. Some of our famous artists from this, artists from this period didn't come from wealthy backgrounds. They worked their way up with their natural talent and then became one of the wealthiest. And that's why also they had such longer lifespans than what a lot of people did in this time. Right. I mean, the Renaissance is the time of creation, the time of new ideas, the time to reform. And I think that ideology is part of that reform. And look at Martin Luther with his ideas. Right. (laughs) With all the natural rights that every man has, not the wealthy man has. And so, I mean, this was the time that things were starting to change and that you didn't have to be wealthy to be well-known. Right. So in this piece, you will hear those two violins going back and forth. And hopefully during it, maybe it can bring that reflection upon yourself, how you could see that this is the dance to honor the glory of the beginning. It's that dance that this unknown composer has written, or at least transcribed, so that we hear his take musically on it through dance. Now, throughout this song, we are going to invite call-ins. The number to call is 479-979-1490. And, you know, we would like to hear your take on how you feel dance is different between this time in the Renaissance and now. You know, how it's different and what it means and how things might be portrayed in terms of dance then as to now. And also, if you have any questions for us about the Renaissance, anything that we didn't maybe go over or any input that you have on that, feel free to give us a call. Enlighten us as we try to enlighten you. Right. We always love to hear from viewers, well, sorry, listeners, who know on this subject and know a lot about it and can add to the subject because it adds not only to our knowledge, but to knowledge of the everyone else, everyone else who's listening out there. So again, the number to call would be 479-979-1490. And this piece is the Estampita Comenciamento de Gloria.
that was the Estampita Comenciamiento de Gloria, a piece honoring the beginning, the creation, and the glory of it all. Absolutely. And we hope that as you were listening to it that you could hear the how much slower it was in the former dance music, but still very eloquent. Right. Very, it seemed, I mean, as I listen to it, I can't help but just think deep thoughts, it seems like. Right. I mean, it's made to make you think. As you're dancing to it, hopefully, I think the idea was that the dancers would know enough about, you know, their religion at the time, because religion was something that was very highly valued and taught. We did start to see the transition to the vernacular. Thanks to Luther's movement, the Bible became more and more available in the vernacular. Well, not just because of Luther, but also because of the printing presses. These new presses can mass-produce these pages that were needed for the Bible. But thanks to Luther, we see that movement to want the Bible in the people's language, not just in Latin. Exactly, because back in the medieval time, which we went over last week, um, the only person who would read the Bible would be at church, and it would be the priest, and it would be in Latin, a language that most people did not speak. Right. Only the elite and the educated would know it. Priests, monks, friars, kings possibly. I mean, usually kings were, while yes, they were educated, a lot of kings didn't put effort into thinking they needed to learn these languages on their own. Exactly. They had people who did that for them. <laughs> exactly. And so this was a time that people were finally be able to like pick up the Bible and read it themselves and understand it in their own way. And it was huge for a lot of people. Right. I mean, with Luther and with the Anglican Church both, they valued that sense of knowledge and being able to read for yourselves and learn and interpret so that you might understand it more as a person not just it being spoon-fed to you and having to accept what was told to you and not being able to know any different. Exactly. And so this was a huge period for that during this time. And so as people would listen to this kind of music and understand the background and have read the Bible themselves, because as the people who would be inside an event like this would be educated and probably would have read it themselves, they would be listening to it and having deep thoughts about their faith and the God that created the world. Right. So our next piece is called uh, the Bossa Dance. It's actually a collection of four different Bossa Dances all together. Numbers one, two, three, and four. That's, that's what they're labeled as. And these, like the pieces before this, they were all by anonymous composers. We still don't have a lot of composers signing their names at the time because the pieces were still written to the glory of God. But during the Renaissance, towards the end, we did see that in doing research for the show the later we got into the Renaissance, into the 15th century, we started seeing that almost every composer signed who he was and what it was he had written, so we knew who it was. Exactly. And while some of the early composers, like Talis, they were only able to publish so many of their works because of the connections that they had. Talis had connections with the queen, with the people in the court, and he was wealthy. He was well celebrated inside the church for his music there, all of his Latin pieces. And so through that, he was able to publish his music and keep his name alive. Right. And now with the Renaissance moving on, we see people being able to pay to have their things printed. It was still hard to get them printed, but if they had enough money, it could be done. 
Exactly. It was no longer a permission that had to be given. It was something that you could actually pay for. Granted, it wasn't cheap, so a lot of the, you know, not-so-wealthy composers, which there were plenty, could not pay to have some things published. Right. In this piece, it's oboe with the trombone undertone. We, do, we started to see the trombone more now in the Renaissance. While we had it in the medieval era, we didn't hear a lot of it last week. In these next dances, we really hear it, which adds that bossy, that bass feature. It's not very loud, it's very light, but it's there, and it's profound enough that you can notice it. That trombone is really what sets these pieces aside and makes them that bossy bit. While, yes, bossy also means low, low can also be interpreted as the term for something that is low in tone, even though with the oboe it was not completely low in tone because the oboe was what had the melody in these pieces. Exactly. And this was also just like a time for everything else to change. This was a time for instruments to change. And so this brought a lot of instruments changing into the musical world, which eventually led to the Baroque. Right. And trombone being one of them. <laughs> See, seeing a little bit more of a spotlight. Right. So hopefully you're able to hear this trombone here in these next four pieces, the Basse Dances. <laughs> Thank you. 
2 from the concert hall here on KUOZ 100.5 FM. Community radio from University of the Ozarks here in Clarksville, Arkansas. Thank you for tuning in from the concert hall. I'm Zachary Payne. And I'm Corbin Starch. If you're just now joining us, we've reached the end of our show as we kind of lead you off into this starry night. Exactly. And so, as we lead you off into this final night, we will leave you off with Pavana 1 and Pavan 2. Um, these pieces have a lute-like instrument similar to a guitar, but not quite what we consider a guitar today. And so you're going to be hearing a lot of that in them, um, a lot of moving around, a lot more complex melodies. Um, in the Medieval period last week, you guys heard some lute instruments and some other string instruments, but the rhythms weren't quite as complex as these are and didn't jump around as much because this was a time of some experimentation. Well, some chords, or not chords, but some keys were still not so allowed. Um, they still did a lot more with the music than the medieval time did. Right. In this period, I mean, it was that time of change. They're trying new things. It was accepted now. Well, it was... I wouldn't... It is accepted and slightly encouraged, but it is still with reservation. I would say it was more tolerated right. than encouraged. I think that is a better word, tolerated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I would say. With so much going on within the church, they didn't have time to micromanage all the music going on. And so, of course, you know, the occasional slip. Um, and also inside Pavon, too, you're going to uh, also hear some other percussion, some tambourine, and something that sounds very similar to the guitar today, the mediev- uh, like a medieval guitar. And... I thoroughly enjoyed it when I listened to it. It's two very good pieces, and it's a good note to end on. Right. They're very moving, and I think they'll help our listeners go forward into tonight and hopefully into their sleep and into tomorrow with that good note, that perpetual moving, that happiness that this Renaissance music really brings. Exactly. Wasn't anything too sad inside the Renaissance. No. (laughs) But as we leave you, we would like to leave you some information, you know, how to get to us, contact us. Right. So, as you know, with the show, we do try to showcase a lot of local talent. And we want to invite you, the listener, to submit your works to us and you know present yourself to us so hopefully we can bring you on the show. Last week we heard from a composer, Ben Aiken. He was someone we just got put in touch with by a professor at the university. Someone from the community who we didn't even realize was there, I don't think. Or at least I didn't. I'm so new. No, not at all. Um, I've been here, uh, I'm a sophomore here now, and um, I had no idea that Ben was composing his own music and doing all this amazing work with uh, Forrester Davis just right in our backyard. Right. So, that that makes us wonder, how many how many more people out there in this area are just like Ben and they're such an artistic wonder? We really want to hear from you. We want to hear your work's and we want to give you the chance to submit them to us. So if you're interested in coming on the show or know someone who would be a good candidate for the show, email us at fromtheconcerthallradio at gmail.com. That's all one word. And again, that is fromtheconcerthallradio at gmail.com. That's a great way to contact us. And even if you're not someone who's interested in coming on the show, we like to hear your feedback. We like to hear from our listeners and you know, know what we think topics you want to discuss in the future things like that any pieces specifically any artists that you want to hear on the radio 
we like to know. Exactly. So please give us some feedback. We'd love to hear it. And we love to leave you with Pavana 1 and Pavana 2. Right. But before we do that, just a few more bits of contact information because I like to push more things on people. Fair <laughs> enough. For all of those people in the wide world of Facebook, be watching this week as we actually make our Facebook debut. You'll hear more about that Thursday when we have a special guest on the show to talk with us through choral music and choral music of the Renaissance and how it was effective in the church. We'll hear Talus, like we talked about tonight, and pieces like that. But we also have our Instagram and our Twitter. Our Instagram, of course, is KUOZ Concert Hall. You can find us there. Keep up with us through the week as we're doing work for the show, editing music, things like that, recording sessions. And then on Twitter at FTCH underscore KUOZ. We'd love to hear from you. We love followers. And we love to get to know our audience. So get in touch with us in all these different things. So again, next week we'll have Kathleen Mowry on the show. I'm sorry, not next week. On Thursday, we'll have Kathleen Mowry on the show. We'll get to hear a few pieces by her, a few pieces by familiar artists, and we'll continue our discussion of the Renaissance. So, again, enjoy, and thank you for tuning in as we send you off with Pavana 1 and 2. Have a great night. (laughs) 